0: Intensely Inquisitive, the podcast that searches for answers to life's big and not so big questions from the people qualified to give them with your host, Orion Kelly. Thanks for taking the time to listen to Intensely Inquisitive. I'm Orion Kelly. At the core of this podcast is a desire to understand things on a deeper level, to know more, to ask why. My purpose is to empower you with knowledge, education and growth opportunities through open, honest and inquisitive conversations. In this episode, we explore the topic of political parties and democracy and ask the question, what's happened to Australian democracy and why are politicians failing to connect with the electorate? My guest is Dr. Zare Gazarian. Zare is a senior lecturer in politics and international relations at Monash University and co-author of Australian Politics for Dummies. He is also an award-winning educator and author of countless journal articles. He may have even taught me politics. Zara, thanks for joining me.
1: Pleasure to be with you, Orion. Thanks for having me.
0: Now, I am busting, as you know, to, to hear your thoughts on the future of Australian democracy and liberal democracies in general. But if you don't mind, and we can do this very briefly in broad brush strokes, but I just want to lay down some groundwork first for, for those listening. So can you explain... Exactly how our democracy, the Australian democracy, functions you know, in broad terms, in theory and obviously in practice.
1: Sure. It's, it's a fairly complex democracy that we've got in Australia. We have a federal system, which means that we have a national level of government that is responsible for a certain number of things. And then at the, at the other end, we have state governments. Um, this is, of course, a product of Australia's um, federation. Australia initially was a, a series of colonies self-governing, autonomous, and then in 1901 we became a federation which um, distributed powers between state and federal governments. So in um, general terms, Orion, the um, federal government is responsible for immigration, um, currency, big national issues, where the states are more responsible for service delivery like health and education,
0: it's and it's a representative form of democracy. You know, the, the liberal democracy, small L liberal. Am I saying it right? So, in effect, we elect people. They represent us in parliament. They're responsible to us. Those people in parliament are responsible to their party, and then it kind of filters through.
1: Correct. So, that's right. That's the that's the premise um, of of that um, parliamentary based Westminster system. We've got a, a system that um, traces its origins back to Westminster, meaning that we elect one individual member of parliament to represent our local area and they do their best, in theory, to represent us um, in, in the lower house. Yep. And, of course, we've got um, the upper houses as well. At the national level, it's the Senate. In the States, um, we've got upper houses as well, except Queensland, um, which uh, does not That's have right. an upper house.
0: And later on, we will get to um, some research you've done on uh, a certain age group and their even remote knowledge of local members. What's this local member you speak of? Uh, But first... When we talk about mainstream political parties in Australia, the parties most identified—I'm saying this is my opinion—Liberal Party, National Party, Labor Party—they're kind of the big three. Well, being taught by you and having the privilege to, you know, to learn politics in a university setting, which not everyone has the opportunity to do, we learn the history behind these parties. And for some people, it can, you know, it's mind-boggling and it kind of it blows them away. But talking about, you know, Liberal Party, National Party, Labor Party, can you just give us a rundown on these parties? Their kind of their history of how they came together and and what they stand for. Mm. I, I think that's that's right, and
1: um, you make a really interesting point there in the discussion about learning about politics and government. Not everyone does, and and we know um, through some research that we've done in Victoria and, and other parts um, of Australia, not all school students when they leave high school are equipped and prepared um, with the knowledge they need to make sense of Absolutely. the political system. Absolutely, um, to that to that extent. So. Um, you know it's that knowledge about the parties, what they stand for, is, is really important. Basically, you can think about the parties in, in three main ways. Okay, the Labour Party is the first, it's the oldest political party in Australia, and as the name suggests, it was built to ultimately advance the interests of um, the working class, those in Labour. So, a union based party, in a effect, a union based, correct, a union based party that was created in the 1800s, late 1800s. Um, and by the time of federation was a fully-fledged national political force. Um, it has a remarkable story in that whatever happened in the Labour Party affected the overall party system um, up until creating the modern Liberal Party. So we've got the Labour as being the oldest, number yep. one. We've got the National Party that came in a bit later on, after federation, um, and what the National Party is all about is about advancing the interests of Uh, Primary producers, essentially farmers, rural regional constituencies. They're a conservative, socially conservative group, and they are an anti Labour Party. Then we have the Liberal Party, the modern Liberal Party, which was created in the 1940s after a series of anti Labour parties emerged and collapsed. Um, And ultimately, in the 1940s, we have a character by the name um, of Sir Robert Menzies. We're in the building. Named after
0: him, that's right, Broadga- named after... Broadcasting from Monash University's Ramsay's <laughs> <right>. building.
1: <laughs> Who was able to galvanise all these anti-Labour forces into a new cohesive political party, which he named the Liberal Party.
0: So they're trying to bring you back to life as we speak right now in <laughs> in Canberra, presumably. That's that's uh, We'd think so.
1: Certainly, it's it's this idea that you have Labour on one side and on the other side, you've always had anti-Labour in Australia.
0: Historically the national party have never formed have never formed their own government in, in other words there's a there's a coalition and i, I feel like in some eras it's well um, you know you need us more than we need you and that switches whoever's saying that it switches we, now you need us more than we need you well no you need us more than we it kind of does it really switches in this kind of this coming together of the the coalition government which is just how we know it i find that really interesting because you know let's say i am in the heartland of the national party in a way in a, in a sense, I'm voting for the Liberal Party so that the National Party can give me what I want.
1: That's right. I, I think uh, I think this is um, a really good observation because the, the National Party, because it only represents or it's only able to win those seats in those regional and rural areas, it does not have the numbers in the House to form government by itself. So it needs a major partner in order to have its hands on the levers of power. Yeah. The Liberal Party, being the leading anti-Labour Party, is a great partner for the the nationals. Um, And that formal coalition agreement, of course, means that if the um, coalition does win the election, the Liberal Party leader becomes Prime Minister, the leader of the National Party becomes Deputy Prime Minister. So they are a small party with a very big say in national politics. In a
0: a sense, there's really no way of them being able to provide the things they promised their electorate without you know without the the seats in the house from the liberal party so the, when we talk about a coalition it truly is and it, when you think about it stepping away from you know the, an academic view it's astounding that the labor party can do it themselves they can do it themselves but the liberal party need the nationals and the nationals need the liberal party and i've uh, it's just one of those, it's not really, I haven't got a question. It's just an observation. No, I find it's that a, it's a astounding. Obs- it's a great observation. And I think that's sometimes
1: what frustrates many Labor Party strategists, that they come close to winning some elections, mm. but because of the coalition agreement, the National Party always sides with the Liberals and, and gets them over the line. Yeah. But you, you're right. It, it suggests to us that the anti-Labor side of Australian politics has always been fragmented, and that is still seen today by the fact that we've got a party that is representing those regional areas and a party that is more um, broader in its scope.
0: And I think, uh, kind of going on to the next question, which is talking about: Do you think there are any other uh, parties that I've kind of left out that are mainstream political parties? And before you answer that question, you know, from what certainly from what you've you've taught me, I mean, we're talking about uh, you know. I guess, um, parties that go go on waves, you know, purpose parties, these types of parties, Mm. they're they're behind something, they have something that kind of pushes them through. But then Labor are starting to tap into some of those like Greens, etc., in like a quasi-coalition, which I find it's kind of contradictory. But, you know, have I I missed out any parties we should talk about with regards to mainstream parties or just the big three? It's really the big three that have the chance of governing. They're the ones that are going to form government
1: after an election. They have since federation... They have over the last hundred odd years, so I would think that they are yep. the big three. However, having said that, you're right. You you raised the name of the Greens, and I think it's worth putting them in as now part of the established political party framework because okay. they are they are, are demonstrating a capacity. To just hang on, um, <laughs> and and I say that with um, respect to a party that was really it's no mean feat to get into the Australian Parliament um, and to to maintain. Your space, And that's hmm. what the Greens have done, remembering that as a political party, it has also formed of different groups. It's got pro-peace movements, it has pro-conservation, um, it has a very strong um, humanitarian or social justice element. Hmm. So it, it also has a number of threads there. And I think in recent times we've seen those threads unravel um, in periods where the Greens themselves have, have found them... Um, their own internal organisation and structure to struggle with coping yeah. of being a, a, a mainstream party.
0: And leading into our next question, and uh, I guess a point that i found too is that, so let's say they're a movement party or, you know, one of the parties you would you would teach is kind of a mm-hmm. movement party. Uh, and let's say they're a movement party using on the wave of people going, yes, I agree, people shouldn't be treated like that. You shouldn't do that to people. Uh, and then, but then from my point of view, the factor of matter is that, you know, look, you, you can say, uh, you know, you read... Uh, you read Money magazine in a survey, and then go and get, and then you, but you actually read Mad magazine. The, the fact of the matter is, you know, great, they're a movement party and people are behind them, but maybe, maybe Australia is slightly more backwards, potentially slightly more old-school fashion, potentially slightly more racist than we'd like to think we are. And as a result, as you say, they've always been a movement party, but they've never been able to actually mm. step up to that next level where they have a national party, I guess, type of impact Correct. Cool. I mean, they they um, have
1: always struggled, of course, to win one seat in the lower house, which is very hard for a minor party. They've been able to do that. But when we look at where their support comes from for, for the Greens, it's very much about inner urban right. electorates. Yeah. So very much close to the CBD, although that ring of um, suburbs around a CBD. Um, and that, that carries um, true for Melbourne, That's right. Sydney, Brisbane... WA around Perth. Which um, doesn't help Labor,
0: does it? it? In a way it kind of rules them out In It, it does. It's, it's a tough coalition to, to maintain. It is,
1: it, it yeah. is and, and Labor finds itself fighting on two fronts. On the one hand it's trying to fight of course the anti-Labor forces in the coalition but it's also trying to defend its interests and representation in those urban areas against the Greens in particular. So yeah. it, it is a tough ask to be Labor at this point in time.
0: <laughs> okay, now these are the questions I've been looking forward to. Uh, over the past few years, it would seem there's been a, a wave of political unrest and change kind of crashing over liberal democracies and nations more broadly from the French elections to, uh, you know, the crowning of Donald Trump as the president of the US and and now the infamous Brexit referendum, which is, is you know, is, is really coming up to the, its, you know, end, I believe. Mm. What do you make of this global unrest and and can you offer any possible causes? And I'm, I'm desperate to hear what you say, but I say that in addition to knowing that In end, the experts and the pollsters and the people, they didn't see a lot of this coming. So now in hindsight, it's a great opportunity to ask you, what the? (laughs) I
1: think that that after Brexit and after Trump, the two most common questions that we had as commentators was how the polls got it so wrong. That's right. I think there's one answer that we can give that is semi-credible here. Okay. Both systems use non-compulsory voting. So when the polls were taken, they may have well have indicated that people would have been in favour or against Donald Trump or Brexit. But when it came to the crunch of people actually turning up to vote, got to do it. they didn't. So that distorts the, the polling stuff. In Australia, just by way of comparison, Orion, of course, we've got compulsory voting. And, and when we have opinion polling, for example, by news poll, it's remarkably close to the final result um, the last news poll of the election cycle is essentially replicated on election day. Okay. So it's, I think the polls aren't the problem. Okay. What we are clearly seeing, however, is a sizable rejection of the status quo by a large proportion of voters, of citizens. And this is often um, because of the economic climate. This is because there is a sense that their lot in life has not improved under the, under the status quo. Yeah. And people are looking for solutions. People are looking for p- candidates who will promise them to solve problems hmm. in a way that they can understand. That's right.
0: They'll never solve the problems. They can they can never solve the problems. That's the political system. But, of course, they, they just say the right things. That's, that's Th- exactly They're not right. politicians. Correct. Correct. Whether Correct. it's the US, Brazil, France, wherever. I mean... Yeah, I genuinely don't believe it. It would work in Australia, but the fact of the matter is, from your point of view, people ask you. People ask me. I'm genuinely. I just. I'm astounded um, that where liberal democracies are, where democracies are headed. Mm. And I question. I question what's going on. And that I think that's that's a that's a really big question for people. Using France, mm. US, Brexit, Brazil as you know, they use those as the bullet points for the question. Sure. Um, but from your point of view, so you really see it as um, this kind of wave of feeling through the world that people just aren't happy with how it's going for them in the end and think, no one's fixing it for them.
1: I, th- I think that's the sense and, and we sort of look at where, what the marker is here and we are really only 10 years off uh, having experienced the global financial crisis 10 mm. years ago. So it is still, that impact is still being felt by people um, who rely on their labour to, to generate an income, right. on, on people who um, are looking for work, on, who are um, depending on government for services. And when you've got a major economic issue, such as the GFC 10 years ago, those ramifications, that wave of effect, will still be washing through. Mm. And you've got candidates like Trump, like the Le Pens in mm. France, um, I'd even say like Pauline Hanson in Australia, who identifies a number of issues, whether it's migration, immigration, whether it's refugees, whether it's um, offering um, foreign aid, whatever the case is, and they identify those as being the, the main problem yep. that is holding back the society which they are seeking to represent, and they run hard on them, and it makes sense for them. It... it for for many voters, these candidates are saying things that no other candidate is saying. They that's say right. it in a way that is easily accessible, and they say it in a way that makes sense.
0: Yeah, they're getting random dots and joining it to make a picture. In in the end, I mean, oh, well, this problem here. Well, that's why you don't get paid very well. That's why you don't have a job. You know, yeah. And and kind of. And I totally understand that where people are coming from. In the end, I think from my point of view, and I don't know if you kind of agree or disagree, but I have an observation that modern day politicians have become almost caricatures of the kind of politicians Menzies created and and no one no one buys it anymore to the point where it's it's kind of clickbait or pop-up ads. We just minimize it down. It is. It's very
1: much the professional politician. We know um, I think if you ask um, an observer, a casual observer of politics and government, you ask them what does the the ordinary Politician look like they'll they'll describe them wearing a suit, um, well
0: spoken, white male potentially.
1: Yeah, and I and I think these these characters and, and these more let's call them more populist candidates when they emerge, they present themselves as being the anti-professional um, right. politician. They are gaff prone. They will make mistakes with their facts or figures, um, and that is actually part of the charm for That's many right. voters who see these. Uh, candidates, not so much as, the, as a continuation of the professional politician, right. but someone who's a bit more authentic.
0: I think it, it's better content for the media mm. organisations. It's better content. People want to watch it. They don't want to watch a 20-second soundbite that was written by Christopher Pine at 6 o'clock this morning and emailed out to the members. Yep. They don't. So, it, you know, these kind of gaffes are better content. In addition to that, I, I, I genuinely believe, you know, whatever gets the most energy mm. will always thrive, will mm. always succeed. Energy is energy. That's just life. If you're gonna, the most energy goes to you know. If Letterman wants to make George W. Bush jokes for eight years, guess what's going to happen?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's right. That's right. And and I think in in the U.S. we've got that idea. And a lot of people are concerned, were shocked about how can Donald Trump win the election? Well, it's not really shocking if we just look at one very important factor yeah. and that is that he was the leader of the republican party a major party <laughs> right. um, endorsed endorsed by the Funded. party, and of course he was representing the party that had been out of the
0: white that's house right. for two terms two terms eight years and in in essence uh you know it's not compulsory so he just the people that the, again the energy the, the more you hear about someone the more it's going to create energy for them and that's where it, so i want to bring it back locally now the victorian liberal party uh potentially, in your own words from articles you've written, suffered a crushing defeat in the 2018 state election. And the New South Wales Liberal Party uh, will be holding their breath ahead of the 2019 state election. So what do you think happened, for starters, in Victoria? And do you think it's a sign of things to come for the Liberal Party, both at the state level in New South Wales in, in the coming months and also at the federal level? Because people want to know, in Victoria, did, did the, what happened? They, I thought there was a big red shirts fiasco and the Liberals were, were a shoe-in. What happened? It's a really...
1: I think that's a really interesting case study of the twenty eighteen Victorian state election, um, and and the Liberal Party did have a, a th- it was a thrashing an absolute thrashing when a party loses its its heartland seats such as Hawthorne and comes close to losing its its um, absolute um, rock solid seats such as Brighton, hmm. then you know the party's in deep trouble. Yeah, there are a couple of factors that I think played on on voters' minds. One of them was what the Federal Liberal Party was doing. Of course, it was just a couple of months after it had disposed of uh, yet another Prime Minister in Malcolm Turnbull. Malcolm Turnbull, of course, was replaced by um, Scott Morrison in uh, August or September, just a couple of... basically a few weeks out from the November election. So I think that left um, some negative residue in voters' minds about the Liberals. But secondly, the Liberal Party in Victoria has has really struggled with an identity crisis in recent years. And and that is, I think, something that's playing out in non-Labour politics around Australia. The question is, who does it seek to represent?
0: Right, yes. And And what do they stand for? And
1: what do they stand for? Is it a party that is a socially conservative party, that is more closely linked to, for example, evangelical churches... Um, or um, a party that is so uh, much focused on socially conservative policies that it doesn't really take into consideration economics or um, other sorts of policies? Or is it more of that smaller liberal party in that it's about individual liberties, smaller government and so on? The Mm. party itself seems to be struggling on that question.
0: And I think a lot of the messages were were just... Ill-advised, they were they were super tough on bail and crime, and they they were just um, sprouting this stuff that was just, I mean, it was Trump-like, uh, and I can see I can I can see where it came from. But when you talk about smaller government and and, you know, and civil liberties and all these types of things, it was it was just so heavy-handed. It was kind of Dutton-like, and and, and like you say, um, you know, some people would go what the hell does federal liberal, sorry, state liberals go, what the hell does federal liberal have to do with state? Where? Don't, well, no, regular people that vote, and we're having this conversation now, and you pointed that yourself, that's just not true. The, the Liberal Party suffer defeats or, you know, suffer punishment for things they do, whether it's state or federal. The Liberal is a Liberal Party. That's how we kind of look at it. And New South Wales coming up very soon. Do you think it's a similar, a similar fate? And, and, and we, we're going, we're virtually going New South Wales- and then federal, yes. Um, yeah, and where, the where 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 do you think too for the for the Liberal government for for federally and you know you can touch on New South Wales if you'd like to. Yeah, I, I think the New
1: South Wales one is going to be a really interesting um, election. That's due in March. In New South Wales, um, they've had a a change in in uh, premier there as well. There is one thing that will help the New South Wales. Libs, of course, and that is the fact that the Labor Party has been in a bit of disarray. Well, they've um, lost their leader through most of the campaign. They have, yeah. yes, and, and there is still some longer-term memory in that voters will probably think back to um, the OBEDS affairs, and, and um, for those who may not be familiar, essentially, um, some ministers in the previous Labor government were was seen and were guilty of um, corrupt behaviour. So some voters would still probably think about those things. When casting their vote, but certainly, uh, I think th- the New South Wales Liberals are in a real trick. It's going to be very close for them.
0: Has the Liberal Party become pre-Menzies? Has it become two parties at opposite ends under the one banner, trying to merge conflicting views? And and is there like is there a Menzies-like split? Possibly it seems like there's two separate parties. Very, very similar to how you've taught us pre-Menzies.
1: Th- there are. I think there, there's an element of that. I think the the foundational split that we can see is really due to resources i think the liberal party is struggling like all other political parties it struggles to attract members okay in order to try and boost its membership the party has turned to um, religious organizations um, evangelical churches and other sorts of groups like that socially conservative groups to boost its numbers when you have that, when you have an influx of people coming from these backgrounds into a political party, they want to make a contribution. Yeah. And the way that they think they will make a contribution is through the policy debate. So I think what we're seeing is really the Liberal Party's desperation of trying to boost its numbers now coming back um, in that form of, of policy debate that it just doesn't have an answer for.
0: Can you see how, um, how a, you know, a regular... Photo in an electorate could look at the Liberal Party in 2019 and go. If I look at the the members, it seems like two parties in one, and neither of them are the same. They're they're conflicting, or they're they're at different ends. And and even publicly, they seem to say that. Whether it's you know Pine calling out Dutton or Dutton Mm -hmm. calling. I mean, it's it's kind of like watching the world's worst football team. I mean, they, they don't work together. They're not playing the same game plan. Um, It's kind of ridiculous. It's become kind of ridiculous.
1: Well, it it looks that way. Certainly it's been looking that way for the last year or so um, and probably even for the last couple of years since the party got rid of Tony Abbott. The Liberal Party's always had those broad um, divisions and and we know that um, based on uh, the previous Prime Minister, John Howard, he used to call the Liberal Party a broad church of ideas. (laughs) But therein, I think, is the key to this, that... While you will always have differences of of opinion, differences of policy, um, different ideas, the role of the leader is to somehow incorporate all those ideas to form a cohesive party.
0: Howard. Menzies. Yes. So we're talking once in a generation.
1: And they had, (laughs) Menzies, as you point out, Howard, as you point out, had the capacity to give each side... Um, the sense that they were valued, they are important, and also to give them policy concessions from time to time so that they felt they were making a meaningful contribution to the party and to government. I don't think you've got that same approach in current Liberal leadership mm. um, uh, styles, and, and I think the way in which the, the members are coming from, the, the, re- the sources of membership, also doesn't lend itself
0: yeah. to that idea that you can reconcile these characters so easily Is the next Howard around or or can we, can we envisage a Howard like leader on the way or, or is the party that far away from? from cultivating that type of person, that type of leader? Because Howard was, Howard was unelectable for quite a while, mm. can I just point out? You know, when he finally got elected, it was I think it's probably the greatest day in my grandmother's life. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, the fact of the matter is, it wasn't like the guy walked in and was the most popular man on the planet. No. The guy could not win an election, basically. No. Who's the, who's the next Howard? Do we have the next Howard?
1: I, I'm not sure we do. I, I don't think we can say that we do. And um, if we look around Parliament, um, we can see that those... Even on the Labor side, when they chopped and changed leaders, um, it, it sort of becomes this um, expectation that voters will ultimately get this party out of government, put the other party in for a period, <laughs> see how they go, and if they don't like what's going on, yeah. they'll go back to, to the other party.
0: Bringing our focus now, let's talk a bit about some research. So I'd love you to share with us some research that, that you've been a part of. you the first-time voters and what you discovered regarding their knowledge of of local members or candidates from the party they plan to vote for. Well,
1: it's it's really interesting. I've been um, lucky enough to be part of that project that's been looking at first-time voters, and it's it's really interesting that when we asked young people about their preparedness, how well-equipped they felt um, to participate in elections, to participate in Australian politics and democracy generally, um, a lot of young people felt ill-equipped. A lot of people did not feel prepared to cast their vote with confidence. Um, And even things um, such as the basics of Australian politics, such as um, do you know the difference between a federal or or a state government, some respondents did not know that there were different levels of government. So it suggests to us that there's a great opportunity to really bolster what young people know about their political system. And it's not just an academic exercise, of course. It's because in Australia we have compulsory voting, we're all part of the system, and we know from international research um, and democratic theorists, of course, that the more people know, the better equipped citizens are with political knowledge, the better democracy works. Uh, I think that's the key. The better able. They are more equipped to hold decision-makers to account. And if they tell a lie, if they mislead... Um, voters, then, yep. then the citizens have the knowledge to to hold them to account. That's right. So that's the opportunity for us as researchers, um, as educators, to really try and, and
0: make inroads into
1: what we see as a bit of a a, a political knowledge. Um, deficit,
0: and I think that, I think the deficit is growing and not shrinking. Clearly, there's a perception that when you when you vote for a state or federal election, you're voting for the leader of the party. Mm. Um, you probably don't even know the name of your local member. Uh, you probably have to find it. Uh, you know, certainly with regards to the upper house, state wide, you're just voting for the party. Um, so you know, I mean, there's questionable people um, put into those positions in areas they probably need to kind of parachuted into, but. From a point of view of, of local members, are we really over-highlighting over this importance or need for a local member to be a local member? And should we just move on? Or, or, or do you, and do you think local members aren't even local members anymore? Are they so tied up in federal and state issues that, you know, whether it's in Canberra or Spring Street, that they, they don't... Mm. The party won't allow them to be. They don't want to be. Where are we at with local members?
1: Well, many local members don't live in the local electorates. Um, so they may represent um, constituency A, but they don't live in that constituency. And, that, and that's not a problem. I mean, places such as um, England, for example, allow um, members of parliament to represent their constituency, even if they themselves don't live in the country. So I don't think that's, that is a, a, a primary problem. Um, but what we do know is that voters see elections as a contest between parties. And Got so it. when they go to the polling booth, they may have heard about the local MP, the local newspaper, if anyone's reading those. They may have <laughs> um, still the the um, little uh, magnet with emergency numbers from their local MP that they might remember. But ultimately they'll shopping be... Shopping bag. The, uh, though, uh, those shopping bags, of course, <laughs> those shopping bags. They may remember having seen the MP's office on yep. their way to work, whatever. Yep. But they will be voting for the party. Yep. And, and sort of... Linked in with um, with that point about the rise of independence, there's a lot of excitement about oh the rise of independence. We've got, of course, Karen Phelps who was able to win that seat from the Liberal Party at a by-election.
0: Greg Hunt's about to go up against an ex-party member who's saying you know that she will do what's right locally. Yes, yep. This is this is exactly onto that point. So you know Greg Hunt with the with the mm. go- current government, um, yep. and you know he's the independent is kind of broken away. Uh, very much a Malcolm Turnbull uh, party, you know, yep. party side. Here's my question: do, do people care? Does it matter if if my local member is an independent or is not? I, I'm, as you say, do people only care about the party they vote for?
1: We we risk overstating the role or the threat, let's say, that independents pose to the major parties. Yeah, I think if we look at some some results, we note that independents in Australia do really well. In regional rural areas. I'm thinking um, of Indi, a Victorian seat that was held by an independent or was won by an independent. Um, There are a few others in regional rural areas that tend to sort of have a more, I suppose, parochial nature to their politics, where there's greater uh, connection between the candidate and voter. Bob
0: Catter, or those, those types of people that have come up through. That's right. And I feel like independents become independents not through the electorate voting them, but, but through their party and then breaking away from their party. Is that Pretty something much. you observe?
1: Or? Yeah, that's right. You mentioned Bob Catter, of course, who was a former National Party MP, split off from there and, and has become a, a um, successful independent. Um, there have been others, of course. Um, Julie Gillard was supported by two MPs. Who were independents, but ultimately had come through the national party as well. So I think there is there's that element. But when we think about con- contests such as um, Karen Phelps being the this idea that every independent will now take the Karen Phelps approach of winning against a major party, I think that's far more difficult. Because Absolutely, because Karen Phelps, as we know, contested
0: a by-election, and by-elections tend to throw up fluke results. And it's at the whole. Whole of the country, it was the media was yes. saturated in one electorate. Absolutely, in a federal electorate, you're competing against every single electorate, and, yep. and the media channels don't care about one. So, Correct. I guess your your point is that it's much easier in that, in that kind of by-election format. It's also much easier when you was when the leader you ditched was from that electorate. Absolutely.
1: Wow. So the, it was a really peculiar yeah. result, a peculiar right. um, circumstance. So I, I don't think the that based on Australian political history. I don't think independents
0: will have that great success yeah. that some think they might. A bit like referendums. A bit like referendums. <laughs> now, in Australian uh, voting trends, as you say, Australian voters tend to see the parties they want to vote for rather than the people running. So do you, as a result of that, do you think Trump, Macron, uh, you know, the Brazil, uh, Bolsonaro, I believe it is, the results, are they kind of more unlikely here? given we focus more on parties rather than people, or are they likely?
1: Well, it's probably unlikely. Of course, with the Australian system, the parties do much of the vetting for our candidates before they get to the front of the queue. So um, the parties have a responsibility of actually sifting through suitable and non-suitable candidates. Um, so it's unlikely that we end up with that sort of polarising character leading a major party. Um, and there is, of course, that other idea that, the, in particular, if we think about the US system, presidential system, the French system as well, a presidential, yes. semi-presidential system, we have one person running, or two people or three people, running for support of the broader citizenry. Yeah. In Australia, it's that contest between parties. That's right, yeah. And so voters will see, oh, I like the leader of party A, but I don't like the leader of party B, or whatever it is, and they'll go that way. Yeah. And there are a lot of local MPs who would have worked so hard and for so long um, who would lose their seats, yep. not because people turned against them personally, but because voters in their electorates turned against their party. So party is critical, and yep. voters, especially in Australia, I'd say in the US, the UK as well, in Canada see politics as the contest of parties rather than the contest of personalities.
0: Charismatic leaders and can I you know can I say it through history? Haven't gone so well for charismatic leaders, but, but you know, charismatic leaders, is it something people are actually crying out for? Because they're so sick to death of over censored politicians who are told at six in the morning, these are the twenty seconds sound bites you have to say over and over. Do we want a charismatic leader? History will say they're not so great, but do we want them? And but in addition to that would a political party ever, ever allow a charismatic leader, say I join tomorrow, okay? How long would it last before it was beaten out of me and I was either cast aside or you know belittled in the media or even given an opportunity? As in, are we even giving ourselves the opportunity to allow the right kind of people into political parties today? It's
1: interesting. A recent report came out um, just earlier this year that showed that a large chunk of politicians today, members of parliament, have no other worldly work experience other than working for a political party or as a ministerial advisor. So what that means to us is that we have a very small gene pool of politicians, people who work in politics as a profession. Um, In the past, there were a larger number of people who worked in in other fields, education, professions... (laughs) Um, small business, whatever the case. Yeah. But that seems to be shrinking every time we have a survey of, of current politicians. Yeah. The the large chunk are those who have party yeah. backgrounds. And so if, if in that hypothetical case you're running, you'd expect to join a political party, to join a branch, to rise up through the branch structure, to become a delegate, to maybe land um, a position with a, a member of parliament, then and be promoted to a potential shadow minister or even a minister, and then you'd launch your bid for, for a parliamentary career. That's usually the trajectory that we're seeing. Yeah.
0: I won't give up my Canadian passport, though. No. <laughs> do, you, do you agree that it's time to, to at least put to the people uh, you know, an outdated constitutional provision and allow people that actually love the country, want to give back to the country, have the skills and abilities that other politicians don't have? Dual citizens. And just for God's sakes, just just put it to the people, and and if it was if it was put to the people and passed, which is astronomically unlikely, and I'm super sad about that. But if it was passed, good or bad, is that a good or a bad thing? Do you feel dual citizens the chance to get in there and 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 do their bit for the country? I think there's
1: these a couple of things obviously with dual citizens or dual citizens. There's always been that scepticism that um, who are they serving? Are they Serving the country which they are in Parliament, or are they, or are they doing something a bit untoward? State parliaments don't
0: have anything about um, citizenship. That's right. It, it's only the federal Parliament right. that that gets itself into knots. Written by people and conducted by people who came from the UK and therefore were dual citizens. But keep going. That, that's <laughs> they've
1: made it clear that you cannot have someone who is a dual citizen or even eligible that's to right. have that's dual right. citizenship. It's, and it's been. And I think that's. The, That's called a number of people out. It's not so much that they were dual citizens in the first place, but they were eligible through birth that they were eligible to hold dual citizenship. Could they make a positive impression on the country? Absolutely. I mean, we can see um, that there's um, increasing migration rates. We can see that over time, Australia, the proportion of of citizens um, have been born from overseas. Uh, we've come from overseas, but ultimately, I think the critical thing with that point is that the High Court had a chance of that's right interpreting how that part of the Constitution would be used and they erred on the side of reading it literally. Big surprise. And, yeah. and so what, what that means for us is that it's unlikely. That's going to change because we know
0: that... Of the forty-four referendums in Australian not history, good. not good. I said eight or so. Only eight have passed. So I remembered that you taught me well. <laughs> so this is this is this is the thing. Uh, but I think it's a great it's a great point to bring up as we wrap this up. I'd really love to get your your thoughts on a you know from a final point of view. Where to from here? Where do we go from here with regards to Australian democracy and and our mainstream political parties? Because I you know I hear people say this party's is dead. I don't understand them anymore. Where to? for our democracy and our mainstream political parties? This is going to be the real challenge, and
1: I think over the next um, medium term, whichever party wins the next election, the 2019 election, um, they, they have to somehow provide the stability and a sense of just getting on with the job in order to reconnect with voters. For the last 10 years, we have in Australia been treated to parties chopping and changing leaders while that leader is in power. That has caused great um, difficulty that has made people look at the Australian system of politics and government and say, well, h- how can you do that? What sort of system is that? It adds to instability. It adds to uh, policy instability. I mean, for example, we'd, we're still talking about climate change policy um, over 12 years since both major parties agreed to the to the basic principles, so it, it, yeah. it's manifesting itself in a whole range of ways. But ultimately, um, it's about stability, and for voters to know that whoever they vote in will get on with the job of governing and not going on around internal party politics.
0: So in the end, people have lost their their kind of trust or, or their their passionate views to their you know we we've always been a liberal party family. They've they've lost that because they just don't see the the party they once trusted as being able to actually do the job they've mm. asked them to do and and in a way they kind of they see them as playing these silly games mm. in Canberra just do the job and I think from your point of view the way forward is that political parties actually reset and get back to actually you know governing mm. and doing their job and, and delivering and not getting caught up in these these broader issues that like you say, climate change and these, these other issues they talk about. And I think that's, that really is the key to getting, getting people mm. back, but also a trust thing. Do you think a trust thing is also based on allowing politicians to be able to speak freely and openly for their, their electorate? The,
1: there's got to be an element of that. Yeah. There has to be an element of that because people will not believe mm. what politicians say. Um, and I think there have been many high-profile cases where politicians have said something and have done something else after the election. Yeah. And that, that just offends voters. And voters lose confidence in major parties especially as being able to do the job that they promised to do. Yeah. So it is about re- resetting. It's about recasting themselves as organisations that were initially designed to allow citizens to win representation and to make laws. That's ultimately what parties
0: are. And and in your humble opinion, where are we headed to with regards to a federal government after the next federal election?
1: Well, it's going to be a really interesting time after the next federal election. We are expecting to see a change of government. We're expecting to see the Labor Party come back into government. um, And that will allow Labor to recast itself. We know what happened last time. They had Kevin Rudd as Prime Minister, replaced him with Julie Gillard, replaced her with Kevin Rudd again, will Labor have learnt the lessons of the past 10 years? I think that's what voters are really going to be looking at. Sure, policy outcomes, important steps in delivering those promises are going to be crucial, but on that other level, has a major party learnt its lesson?
0: Yeah, and if ever there was proof that parties don't allow charismatic leaders to rise to the top, the Labor Party is all the proof you need. Uh, Look, thank you so much for your time. It's been a fantastic chat. I really appreciate it. Thank you once again. Pleasure to have been with you, Ryan. And a big thanks to you for listening to this episode of Intensely Inquisitive. My hope is that it's empowered you in some way, be that through learning new things, inspiring you to learn more, or simply sparking interesting, deeper conversations. I look forward to continuing this conversation with you so feel free to like the Orion Kelly page on Facebook. And if there's a topic or question you'd like me to explore in an upcoming episode of Intensely Inquisitive, please message me or post it on the Orion Kelly Facebook page. Until next time, keep asking questions. Thanks for listening to Intensely Inquisitive with Orion Kelly. For more episodes and to stay up to date, like the Orion Kelly page on Facebook.